Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 109, we have Preston Pish, the co-host of the Investors Podcast. So if you've got friends who are investors who are struggling to conceive of Bitcoin correctly, this is the perfect episode to share with them. But first, let me introduce the sponsors of the podcast. So firstly, Kraken, one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges, really impressive exchange with a really strong track record on security and acting ethically in the space. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support and on the institutional and business solution side, they are providing best-in-class accounting, reconciliation and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers and fund administrators. Kraken have an OTC desk they offer five fiat currencies and they also offer margin and futures trading. To learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next, Unchained Capital. They're doing Bitcoin financial services and they're offering a multi-signature vault and also Bitcoin collateralized loans. So with the vault, you can use Trezor or Ledger. It's a web interface. It's really simple to set up. And I'll be having Dhruv Bansal back on from the team to talk about their products as well soon. Uh, Unchained also offer Bitcoin collateralized loans, so you can get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins, meaning you don't trigger a capital gains event. So if you want to learn more about that and sign up, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. Preston Pish is a globally ranked podcast host of the Investors Podcast, and he's done his share of Bitcoin interviews with people like Trace Mayer and Tua Mista as well. He's also done some work on the Mayer Multiple, and Preston has done some statistical work on this, so I'm sure you will enjoy this interview. Preston, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen, just so awesome to be here. I love what you do. I love your work and excited to be on your show. Yeah, man, I'm a fan of your work as well. I know you've done uh, your fair share of Bitcoin interviews with legends such as Tua de Mista and also uh, our now mutual friend, Plan B, as well. So, uh, yes. yeah. So, look, uh, Preston, I know you've obviously got a big focus. You're, you're the host of the Investors Podcast, very well known, you know, very um, accomplished in that regard. And I think you can really speak to how an investor is typically thinking and how they normally assess these kinds of opportunities. But I think the crazy thing with Bitcoin is it's different. And yeah, so I guess it might be interesting just to hear from your perspective, how did you first tumble down this Bitcoin rabbit hole? It's funny that you t you say it that way because I always felt from the very beginning, and I've been in the Bitcoin space since 2015, that I was an outsider, even though I came from a finance background into Bitcoin because it seemed like so many people in the space really kind of, maybe this is my own bias, but it seemed like everybody had a, a hardcore tech background. Um, they were coders and whatnot. And so I just always kind of felt like I was, you know, part of the group, but the guy that was the weird one on the side there that came from the finance angle. So it's, it's kind of neat to see everything kind of merging together now here in 2019, where you're starting to see all the paths kind of come together. But Early on, it, it never felt like that for me personally. Right. And in the early days, I think, obviously, there was the cypherpunks and libertarian people who were some of the first few people. And then that next sort of wave, which we might call the 2013 and 14 people, were sort of like the payments people, right? Uh, but I think one of the challenges with Bitcoin is that it requires, it's such a multidisciplinary thing. So it's not easy to just come at it from one angle. You sort of need at least a little bit of each of these different disciplines. What was your experience in that? So what really kind of got me interested was back in 2015, I was seeing what was happening from a central banking standpoint. I was really looking at quantitative easing and saying, this just, this does not add up. Like there's no way this ends well. I was looking at long-term debt cycles, which we can maybe talk about later on, that literally are 80-year-long cycles that play out in the credit markets that take very long times to, to come to some type of finalization or, or some type of fix. And so I'm just searching around. I'm just like, how, how are we possibly going to do another Bretton Woods was basically the question I was asking myself back in 2015. And I mean, it just was like, Bitcoin kind of popped up and I was like, what the heck is this? And as soon as I heard that Bitcoin had a fixed monetary baseline and that it was 
this protocol-based digital uh, currency that you couldn't create more of it. You basically, through blockchain technology, basically fixed the the units in the digital space. I was just like, holy moly, this this is the fix, right? This could potentially be what it is that I'm trying to understand how this is all going to play out. And for me, it just really kind of clicked. It helped that I had a little bit of uh, background or understanding in encryption. And so for me, the tech, I think for me to bridge the gap into the tech was a little bit faster than maybe some other people in finance that maybe don't have some, a, a little bit of a background in that. So, um, you know, right from the get go, I was like, this is amazing. This sounds incredible. And I just couldn't read enough at that point about how it works and, and more about it. I think to me, the common error that I see, and I call this like a, it's just a category error, right? A lot of people who are looking at Bitcoin, they're not conceiving of it as a money. So they're conceiving of it like they would a stock or a bond, right? And if I'm a stock investor, I'm thinking, okay, what's the dividend I'm going to receive from this company? What will the future capital appreciation be in this stock? That is the way I will assess this stock. Or if it's a bond, I'm looking at, okay, what is the interest payment? What is the, again, the capital appreciation that I may experience? And then it's a whole new world to take someone out of that mindset and then think about it like, oh no, actually, this is like an emergent new form of money. How do you uh, think about that? Well, you couldn't have described that any better because you basically described me whenever I first became an investor because I came into investing, I came in with a really simple thesis. It was, who's the best investor in the world? Let me study everything I can get my hands on and every book that that person's ever, ever read. And then let me mimic that approach. And so, you know, this is back in the early 2000s. This is Warren Buffett is the guy, right? And he implements an approach called value investing, where you basically look at the future cash flows that a business could produce. You then do a discount cash flow model based on interest rates. And you say, I think the company is worth this many dollars per share today. And based on that, if I can buy it for $10 cheaper than that price, well, then I want to start buying as much of that as I can possibly buy. So what you have in the financial sector is a ton of people who think through what I just described. That's how they view every single investment. And it's almost like a dogma um, within certain communities that that is the only way that you can value something. And so I, I think it doesn't help that Buffett's comments on gold are very negative from the standpoint that, you know, he has all these analogies that he's used for the, through the years that basically says gold is worthless. And so you have that same community that's saying, well, there's no cash flow that gold is kicking off. And just you can just replicate this argument into Bitcoin and you can see why so many of them have an issue with Bitcoin is Bitcoin's not kicking off a dividend. It's not kicking off a coupon like a bond kicks off. And therefore, because there's no future cash flow, I can't discount that cash flow back at an appropriate discount rate to come up with a value today. That's the end of the thesis. And so I think that that's why you have such an enormous amount of friction, especially with people in traditional finances, because they're looking at it from that lens or looking at it from that optic. Now, what I find fascinating about Buffett's approach is not all of his uh, not all of his investing decisions are based exactly off the model that I described. But I would argue most of the people that follow him in finance would tell you that it is. He he also does other investments that he's looking at from a growth standpoint. So he might buy, let me just give you an example. So like, let's say, uh, this might be a bad example, but I'm going to use it anyway, because everyone's going to understand it. But early on, let's say you went and ate at a Chipotle and there was only 10 restaurants in the local community. And you were looking at it and you're saying, Hey, their operations are great. I could see them opening one of these in a store in a town next door. And then you see that growth rate. Now they've got 100 stores. And you're saying, not only could they have 100 stores, but I think they could put 400 stores in the country. So you could go out and you could say, hey, I think that there's a 4X upside to this business, regardless of the cash flow, just because they're going to have that many more stores and the market cap on the overall business is going to go up 400% because of the growth that can still happen based on how many stores I, I suspect they could put across the country. So whenever you're looking at investing from that lens, then you could start talking about how Bitcoin could be valued, in my personal opinion. And so when you're talking about a currency, which is what my opinion Bitcoin is, is it's, it's a currency. 
So when you look at other currencies, what's the total market cap of the U.S. dollar? What's the market cap of the of the yen? What's the market cap of you, you name it, currency, the euro, whatever? And if you think or you buy into the narrative that Bitcoin could become one of those currencies, then the question becomes, well, how big is it today? Is it 10 stores big? And could it become 100 stores? And for me, when I'm looking at the value of Bitcoin, that's absolutely how I'm doing it. And I would argue that most investors consider that approach very reasonable and viable uh, in the value investing space, which I would argue is about half of the investing community. Um, they want to see cash flows, they want to see profits, and they want to see that discount cash flow model to come up with what they think the value is. So they're just having an extraordinarily difficult time looking at this from maybe that lens. Yeah, that's, I really like that explanation because to me, it and I can speak to this world and I can at least understand that world because I went through university finance courses and so on. And there they teach you again, you know, these different models and the idea is that you want to try to, you want to assess things in terms of how much return are they giving you versus how much risk and so on. And there's, you know, these different ways of thinking about it, particularly, as you mentioned, the DCF calculating things on NPV, net present value and so on. So it's just a range of those things. And to some extent, it's, I think, uh, as we were mentioning offline, it's like 80 years of conditioning, right? It's like, it's just people have been in this mindset. And I mean, to some extent, part of it is, you know, if you look at certain books, right? If you read uh, Stocks for the Long Run by Jeremy Siegel, right? And in that book, I think he mentioned something like 6 or 7% real return over like 200 years. And there are certain mantras as well, right? It's time in the market, not timing the market. And then how do you then sort of take someone out of that into kind of thinking about, oh, okay, how, how, how would I invest when that cycle is potentially coming to an end? So I absolutely love your statement, 80 years of conditioning. <laughs> and the reason I love that statement is because I had briefly mentioned before this idea of a long-term credit cycle. So the person for me that made that idea just etch that in my brain is a guy named Ray Dalio. Um, anyone in finance knows who Ray is. His personal net worth is anywhere from like 16, 18 billion dollars. And Ray made a video and this most of Ray's entire investing approach was based on this idea of large credit cycles and business cycles that ride on these larger credit cycles. He made a video. It's called uh, how the economic machine works. I can honestly tell you, this video is 30 minutes long. It's on YouTube. I'll give you a link so you can share it with your listeners. And I would honestly tell you, this has to be one of the most valuable 30 minutes I've ever watched in my entire life of a video. And it goes into detail and, and in a simple way for people to understand what in the world is happening in financial markets and why you've seen interest rates go down since 1981 consistently. And now they're, the 10-year treasury went from 16% back in 1981. And now today it's at 1.7% and why that is happening and why it's taking so long to play out. This video is amazing. But anyway, going to your point of 80 years of conditioning. So you have things like recency bias. Okay. In financial markets, you've got to understand cognitive biases and you better understand them extremely well. So you just don't get destroyed. So the first one I, I would say under this idea of 80 years of conditioning is recency bias. We rely on habits to make us make things easier because few people want to reinvent their lives every single day. Because we rely on these habit loops that just run in our subconscious of our brain, we just automatically assume that we're accounting for all the instances and the, the things that are going to happen to us based on the, we'll call it the last 10 years or the last 15 years. We think that those are the only type of events that can happen and these two or three standard deviations cannot occur. That's a huge bias. And so if you're looking at something that only happens every 80 years or every 100 years, guess what? You're going to potentially fall victim to that. You have another thing called normalcy bias. Normalcy bias is that, and you hear people say this all the time, well, nothing bad's happened in the last 10 years. So therefore, the deduction is nothing's going to happen. Bad is going to happen in the future, which is just <laughs> totally nuts. But I'll tell you on Twitter, I can't tell you how many times I've made a comment that's probably somewhat uh, 
you know, antagonizing in a way or whatever. And I hear people say, well, it hasn't happened in the last five years, so it's not going to happen again. And my response is typically, ah, the definition of normalcy bias. But anyway, I, th- I think that those are really important for people to think about. And I would really challenge people to go watch this video uh, on these long-term debt cycles because it's just insane. It'll make your mind melt. Yeah, fantastic comment. And I think one thing that's underlying some of that is this perception. And again, this is what we're taught in finance courses at university. It's, oh, the government 10-year bond is the risk-free rate. And I think, I think to your point, again, around recency bias and normalcy bias, we've all tricked ourselves into believing that this government 10-year, particularly the US government 10-year, is seen as the risk-free rate. But really, is it a risk-free rate? Well, think about it like this. If you were... Let's just say you're 32 years old, right? If, if somebody's listening to this and they're in their early 30s, that all they've seen since they have been of age to participate in markets is that interest rates being around like two or 3% is normal, right? Like that's all you know, because you weren't even part of the 2008 crisis. Like they, they've all entered the market. All they know is that the stock market just always goes up. And that interest rates are always low. And so you talk about normalcy bias and recency bias and these kind of things. Like you can see why people just look at what's happening today with, you know, our Federal Reserve here in the US dropping in a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last four days into the repo market. And they're just like, oh, well, that's what happens, you know? It's it's crazy. Absolutely. And so I think the other thing is around how often as you were mentioning, the change in a monetary standard, right? Are we going to have another Bretton Woods? And that may that sort of event may happen every 30 or 40 years, right? Uh, probably the last big kind of event like that is the whole 1971 when the gold window was closed. But again, it's how can a person think about ways to position themselves for a change in the monetary order? Well, yeah, and I, I would argue that really the last time the world has had a monetary order that was that was actually sat down with a bunch of people from a bunch of different countries to have an agreement struck was really kind of Bretton Woods in 1944, because what happened in 71 was more of the U.S. basically defaulting on their promise, because the promise was, we're going to fix the dollar to gold, and therefore, if all you other countries fix your currency to the dollar, then the whole world is has a fixed baseline of currency, and then trade amongst nations can be uh, fair and favorable, right? But through that time in 1944 up until 71, I would argue the adjustment of the money multiplier. And if you don't know anything about that, just Google it and you can kind of understand how a country can conduct monetary expansion, but do it in a kind of a sly and sneaky way. Um, through the adjustment of the money multiplier up until we got to a point where we couldn't back it with the gold supplies that we had. Therefore, we had to come off the, the, the gold standard was the breaking point. And then the narrative that was sold was, ah, you don't necessarily have to have sound money. And that works as long as central bankers do not adjust and manipulate it slowly over time. But what we've had happen is that it has been adjusted and manipulated over time through the drop of the interest rate. And therefore you have what you have playing out. The the default point comes when you can't go any lower than zero. So that works. You can come off of a gold standard. You could do it all day long. But all the central planners have to, every dollar that they put into the system, they've got to take another dollar out. And they have to do this consistently over the long period of time. And that, in my opinion, this is all, you know, Preston Pish's opinion. um, Over time, they would put, you know, $1 in and they'd take 50 cents out, right? And they would do that slowly, and it happened so slow over decades that it never really seemed like it was a thing. And so you can see how normalcy bias, recency bias takes hold because this is happening over an entire person's lifetime, that they're not noticing what's actually taking place. And what's taking place is you're seeing a very, very slow default. And once everybody's at zero globally across the board, and we're almost there, that's when you have everyone say, uh, we need something that has a fixed monetary baseline. We need sound money. And so now what is that? And so that's, that's to be determined at this point. 
Yeah, great, great points there. And one thing that commonly comes to mind or is often raised at this point is this point of, oh, aren't these people just a bunch of perma bears? Why are you always calling the end of, you know, the end, you know, the fire and brimstone? And, you know, who's to say now is the time? Who's to say? Because, you know, we've had, you know, people who were calling the end in 2012, they were wrong for six or seven years at least. So that's, I think that's one challenge that someone who's listening might be in their mind thinking, well, okay, yeah, what we're doing now is not sustainable, but how do we know how much longer it could go? Well, and I think that's a, I love that point. And I think a lot of people that might follow my Twitter feed might think that I'm a perma bear or, or however somebody might classify it when in all actuality, I'm definitely not, <laughs> I've been participating in the markets the whole time. But I guess the thing that piques my interest is all the maneuvering and all the the manipulation really is kind of what it is for me because every time I see manipulation in the market, I want to say, hey, somebody's doing something that's not right and I want to highlight it so everyone can see it. But I think when you're talking about the timing piece, I think that um, I really don't think that you're going to see a, a major catastrophic failure until you're truly at the point where all participants, all of these countries are at zero or lower. And I think even then, I think I could conjure up an argument on, on how central banks could still keep it afloat, even with negative interest rates. But, but in order to do that, they would have to remove all physical currency from the system, forcing people into digital currency. And even then, I think it's going to be hard for them to I, I think it's going to be extremely hard for them to control because there's other options that now have entered the market in the private sector, basically. I don't know if you'd call Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency uh, the private sector, but that's, I guess, how I view it is you have this competition to government currency. And so that's why I don't know that they're going to be able to sustain it when it goes too negative. Yeah, that's also the other question as well. So a great point around the negative interest rates. And I think a common question that listeners might be thinking is, why are people essentially giving up their money to borrow, right? Or not borrow, rather they're buying these bonds that they know they're going to lose money on. And the best or most coherent explanation that I've heard is that essentially it's a greater full game. Bonds have an inverse relationship between the yield and the price. And because everyone just keeps buying, pushing up the price, obviously that's push pressing the yield down and that's why we're seeing it push into negative. Is that explanation consistent with what you believe or do you think there's some other explanation, explanatory, uh, sorry, explanatory factors around that? So your description of it being a greater fool's theory is 100% valid. Where I would maybe argue it a little bit differently, I think banks have to participate by law at this point. And that's where... Um, because you're not seeing a lot of the negative rates being pushed into the private sector beyond the commercial too big to fail banks. And so I think that's another factor that makes it so hard to understand the timing of how this all kind of plays out. Because if the banks can kind of shield a lot of the negative interest rates from the private sector of how that materializes into, into people like you and me and how we borrow money, um, that's going to make it run even longer than I think some might expect. But um, it's really hard. It's really hard to say or, or no. I just think that that might be the only argument that you could say that would uh, allow it to even persist longer is that the banks are shielded that and the banks are in cahoots. And I wouldn't even be surprised that in some countries you start to see banks being nationalized and they're not even in the private sector at this point because they then become the government and then it's, I think it really gets mushy at that point. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess if somebody's listening now and they are coming at it from a more traditional investor point of view and they're assessing Bitcoin, they may be looking at it from a slightly different argument case. Or they might be thinking of things like, oh, is Bitcoin uncorrelated? Or what is the sharp ratio of Bitcoin? Or potentially they might be looking at, okay, it's you know, it's returned quite a lot over the last 10 years or so. So what are, are those some factors in your mind that you think a traditional investor might look at Bitcoin and assess it in some way that they might think, okay, it's worthwhile at least taking a position? So I, I absolutely think that this is the most exciting point 
to sell on Bitcoin is really kind of the sharp ratio matched with the fact that it doesn't have correlation to all the other assets. I think where you're having trouble getting traction on it is, first of all, most people in finance do not understand this technology and they don't buy into the idea that it's safe at this point because they don't understand it. You're never going to think something's safe unless you inherently understand how it works and how it functions. Now, where I think you're going to have a psychological bias that overrides that lack of understanding is when a market cap in Bitcoin reaches a level that your, your typical investor just says, you know what, maybe I'm just, I just don't understand it. Obviously, people do because the market cap's $1 trillion. And so then they're going to say, they're just going to default to their, the lazy part of their mind that says, social proof has decided that this is something that I need to participate in. And so I think we're waiting for that to happen. And so it's just going to be a little bit of time before that gets in there. I think the other part from, a, from the financial sector standpoint is, I think when you get Bitcoin settled derivatives in place, you're then going to have ETFs that get approved, and then you're going to have vehicles that are so much easier for the day-to-day -day investor to just throw a hundred bucks or even a thousand bucks or ten thousand bucks at Bitcoin because their friends are making a thousand percent return last year, right? <laughs> like that's the FOMO. That's going to be, in my opinion, this bull market that's getting ready to happen that I think we are just starting to experience that I think is going to easily run to the start or basically the end of 2021 um, is going to be the ETF derivative Wall Street getting on board bull market um, when, when we look back at it. And I think most of it's going to be because we have backed, we have Bitcoin settled, you're going to ETFs and you're going to have all these people saying, you know, it wouldn't hurt to just have a half a percent exposure. That's going to be the narrative that I think you're going to hear Wall Street saying in about a year from now. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating how because we're sort of a little more insider or we have a little bit more connection with it, we're sort of able to see it beforehand. And part of it is that we realize just how small it is right now. Uh, and uh, to, to the points you were making as well, it's also that point around uh, career risk as well. So I think it may right now it's still seen as oh, Bitcoin still a little bit of a weird thing. But eventually, once the first few influential people start getting it, eventually it hits that tipping point of the career risk goes the other way of if you don't hold Bitcoin, now there'll be the question asked of why didn't you buy something? Yeah, there's going to be a flippening. I, I mean, my personal opinion is that there's going to be a flippening of it, um, of that point of view. And I think that there is a lot of career risk for a lot of uh, fund managers at this point, because truly when you're talking about something that has a market cap of call it $200 billion, like Bitcoin is today, I, and you're calling it a currency, a lot of these, these professional money managers that are 60 years old, they're looking at that saying, yeah, right. Uh, that's, that's absolutely nothing right now. You got individual companies with a trillion dollar market cap. And if you're trying to call that a currency, uh, let me know when it hits a trillion dollars and then I'll, I'll take a look at it. So and, and that's a risk that they're taking, but I think that that's what they're defaulting at is they're saying, I don't understand the technology, wake me up when it's a little bit higher, and then maybe I might take a, look, a closer look at it. But I think the thing that, in my personal opinion, the thing that really got my attention was the sharp ratio. When I looked at the chart of the sharp ratio from 2013, and you're looking at something that has that high of a sharp ratio with no correlation to anything else, I'm just thinking, my God. God, that's the holy grail of, of an investment that I have ever seen. And I mean, it's not like the sharp ratio has outperformed in some parts of the year since 2013 versus other assets. It has absolutely crushed by a landslide every single other asset that existed since 2013. The US stock market, the commodities market, the bond market, any other currency, emerging markets, I mean, you name it, and Bitcoin has outperformed it without even a blemish of a day since 2013. So that's, that's insane. Like, that's totally insane. And then you want to combine the fact that there's no correlation to anything. I mean, it's just like an investor's dream. I mean, it's indescribable.
Right, yeah, and I think to me this, uh, I think Plan B has shown this really well on some of his graphics as well, where he shows things like what if you just did, literally, if you just did 1% Bitcoin allocation, 99% cash, and you still got better return for less risk than going a typical 60-40 stocks and bonds. And and that argument, in my opinion, is what in a year from now, if you see the market cap, if I think if you see the market cap go over half a trillion dollars, I think you're going to start seeing your smarter fund managers say, Hey, I think even just 1% exposure to this is going to do wonders for your portfolio. If, if this whole central banking narrative blows up. And I think that the insurance risk of putting 1% of your money in it is going to be the thing that just takes this thing to a whole nother level. Right. And I want to also try and explore a little bit of what might be, whether it's psychological motivations or whether it's kind of institutional setup that might be keeping people out of Bitcoin right now? Could it be that some of these professional fund managers and professional money managers are not geared to buy Bitcoin because they might have a certain mandate that stops them from, they might have a mandate that keeps them invested only in, say, the top stock markets of the world? I think that's probably some of it, but I'd be willing to bet that, uh, how did you describe it earlier? The uh, basically the ego risk or the risk of people being worried that they would get it wrong. And then that being branded onto them is way more of what's keeping people out of it at this point. Yeah. That makes a bit of sense to me as well. Uh, And I think ultimately from a retail investor point of view, it may just be a point around stagnation, right? So they just sense this idea and potentially there is this question that many people are discussing is this idea of are we becoming Japanified, right? Is the whole world just starting to become a low growth economy like Japan did? And because we've got a bunch of zombie companies who are surviving basically thanks to cheap credit. And so in that world, they're looking for a way out or at least some way to get some return. And potentially that's another angle. So my personal opinion, we are absolutely seeing that across the entire world. What happened to Japan, you know, you look at their market in 1990, it peaked. You saw basically an 80% decline. It's come up a, a tad from there, right? But it's been struggling. Their interest rates are at zero. You're effectively seeing, which I, I find this absolutely fascinating, through their quantitative easing efforts, they've had to start buying up their stock market in order to pl- provide enough liquidity into their system. And what you've actually seen is the nationalization of the companies in Japan. The ownership, they've been buying so much of their equity market that you're actually seeing, I mean, if you're looking at it from an ownership and voting rights standpoint, that the government is nationalizing their stock market um, to just just to provide enough liquidity to keep the zombies alive. And that's truly, you know, when you look at, at the price that's being paid for these policies and the fact that you don't have sound money, what it really is, is, is the zombification of companies. And, and I think the other huge consequence of this is think about it. If you're, if you're exercising quantitative easing and you're printing a bunch of cash and then you're bidding the price of bonds into oblivion and paying any price for them, because that's effectively what's happening. Um, who's buying those bonds? These bonds are in tranches of billions of dollars. And so the people that are holding those bonds are very wealthy individuals or corporations, very high capitalized corporations that are sitting on these bond tranches. So if you're taking cash that you just printed out of thin air and then buying those those securities off the open market and remember when you have a buyer an, a buyer of endless money on one side and a person who's selling guess what happens to the price it goes up right and the yield goes down and so when you have these large influxes of capital to the few that are holding these enormous securities what you're effectively doing is you're just obliterating the middle class. You're you're putting you're stuffing all this money into the hands of people that in Ray Dalio would call them the haves, and you're limiting or making the game a whole lot harder for the have-nots. And so, what you're seeing by that by that policy is you're seeing it 
represented in politics. I mean, here in the U.S., you have a billionaire versus a socialist running for for president, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because that's what the that's what the policy is producing. It's it's producing this polarization effect where you have all the money being stuffed into the hands of the people that have securities that are now the the uh, the individuals that are now employing that cash flow. And guess what? There's only so many boats you can buy with the cash that you're handed, right? So it goes into buying securities and it, it goes into buying and bidding up the prices of the stock market. Yeah, I think that's definitely what we've seen in terms of stock market rising and bond price, uh, bond prices and bond yields going the other way. So it, it's just it's become a game of own assets. And if you own assets, then you can benefit at least a little bit out of this inflationary system. But it just drives this overall uh, lack of productivity or at least a, a distortion in the way that the economy gets set up. Well, if you, and if you even want to com- compound it even further, think of it from a corporation standpoint. So if I'm Apple and I can, I, I'm, I've got just a treasure chest of money on my balance sheet, I can go out with interest rates super low, which is a consequence of quantitative easing because you know the government was buying up all the bond market, pushing yields down. I can now go out and I can borrow a crap load of money, billions upon billions of dollars at nothing percent interest rate. And then I just buy back more stock because if my company is returning 10% annually and I buy back more stock, I'm basically providing a larger and more substantial yield to the few shareholders that continue to hold the stock because I'm buying the stock from people that are selling. So I'm, I'm basically doing that same thing, but I'm amplifying it because credit is so cheap for the, the companies that have performed. So it's just it just further amplifies what we were describing before. Yeah, that's a great uh, articulation of that point. Uh, I'm also interested to talk about some of your work with the Mayer Multiple. So now I know this is something that you invented and you coined it after Trace Mayer, who essentially came up with it. So for, for listeners who are not familiar, what is the Mayer Multiple? So Trace, well, let me let me rephrase it. So back in 2017... Bitcoin was going crazy. Um, the price was just going nuts into the summer and then into the fall and then really kind of right up to Christmas time frame in 2017. And, you know, I've participated in enough markets that when you see something literally going parabolic, you just got to be ready because it's typically going to get really painful in, a, in short notice. And so I'm looking everywhere on the net. And I'm thinking, I've got to do something to prove to myself mathematically that I'm making a good decision opposed to an emotional decision. That because at the time I was like, I need this, I need to lower my position size. I I still believed Bitcoin was going to go long, right? I think it's going really long. But in that moment, I felt like the buying was outstripping the number of people that could sustain that buying rate. And so I felt like there was an opportunity for a short-term sell, which then I would try to re-enter the market. And so I was looking for anything I could find that had some type of statistical analysis or way of trying to value um, shorter-term position or shorter-term holdings in Bitcoin. And so I came across an article that Trace had written, and I, to be quite honest with you, Trace was a leading factor of my entry into Bitcoin in 2015. And so I read an article where he was showing, hey, the, the, the current price compared to the 200-day moving average is a great way to look at whether it's overheated or maybe a great time to buy. But on the article, Trace only had, I don't know, he probably had eight different examples in time that showed, hey, here's when it's high, here's when it's low. So I love statistics, I love math, I love numbers, and I was like, all right, I want to do this for every single day that Bitcoin is traded. And so I went and I just pulled some data and I ran a you know a histogram on it and I just plotted it, got a bell curve, and then uh, just looked at, okay, what's in the realm of normal for this multiple and what's in the in the realm of two or three standard deviations. And what I found was what was published on our site. If you go to mayormultiple.com, it has kind of the way we were thinking about it. 
I'm really poor at updating it. And there's been a bunch of people in the community that have created tools now that automatically provide you the day to day of what the multiple is. But, um, it helped me. I think I sold my position in December, probably 7th or 8th of December of 2017, which was, you know, it was like $18,000 at that point. Um, I then again used the mayor multiple to buy back in this past that basically at the start of, of uh, 2019 when it was at a 0.5. I reinitiated some of my position and I was able to buy it at $3,600, $3,700 per Bitcoin. And I, I kind of suspect that, there, that the halving had, had, a, had a role in the timing of how it had to play out. I wasn't 100% sure after seeing you know, uh, Plan B's work now. It's just, for me, much more obvious than it was at the time because it was a lot of intuition. It was a lot of luck. Let me emphasize that. What I did was a whole lot of luck. Um, but I was able to use the mayor multiple to, to help time the exit and the re-entry um, with Bitcoin. Now, um, I think it's important for people. To, my opinion is I don't necessarily know that this next cycle, assuming we do go through another bull market, which I think we will. Um, I don't necessarily think that I would sell on the next uh, bull market because I'm afraid that um, this could be a point where Bitcoin really kind of moves into a whole different level of how it's viewed as a currency where back then I definitely didn't think that it was at that point. I thought, I felt that you had many more years ahead for it to kind of reach that status. And luckily that was a good assumption because it could have been a, a bad assumption, I guess, at the time. But at the time that was my, that was my opinion. Right. And I think Perhaps you were speaking as well to this idea that at that point in 2017, we didn't really have Lightning Network going. We didn't really have all these ways to kind of easily transact back and forward. I mean, yes, there are on-chain transactions, but it, it's just it, it just wasn't at the level, I suppose, in terms of broad mainstream understanding, acknowledgement of Bitcoin as a potential currency and as a potential money. Would that be your view? Absolutely. So I was... Um... I remember that December, I was at an Army-Navy football game. I'm in a box talking to a bunch of bankers, people that are very high up in the banking sector. From So I went to West Point. They're, these were alumni that were pretty accomplished alumni. And I remember I brought up Bitcoin, and they just looked at me and almost laughed. They were just like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, It was kind of like, right. Wait, are, are you kidding? Are you, are you serious right now, or are you joking? And I just kind of looked at them like, I'm, I'm kind of serious, I guess. And, um, I think for me, that was really obvious that, you know, this was not at a point where anybody, uh, was talking about it in a way that they took that serious. I find those conversations are very different now. Um, I still think that they're not at maturity by any shape of the imagination, but I think maybe another year or two, it'll be, it'll be an absolute, um, at, at a point where everyone absolutely understands what you're talking about. They understand the arguments. They understand whether they have a position or not is unknown, but they're going to look at it in a completely different light, in my opinion. Right. And I think what it would take is perhaps in the next few years, it start to be seen more like a competitor to gold, right? So people compare to gold's whatever, seven or eight trillion, they might think of Bitcoin in a similar way to that. And I suppose for it to really go to the full way, it would have to essentially get fully financialized, right? So people might even be thinking in terms of debt and credit in terms of Bitcoin. Although I think my view is we'll see a world with a lot less debt and it'll be mostly an equity-based world. Hypothetically, if we get there and you know the world is operating on a Bitcoin standard, it'll be sort of very equity-based. What's your view then in terms of what might it look like in a few years' time, once it's a little more developed, will we see a little bit more of these financial products being commonplace? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think that the challenge for gold moving forward, and I'll, I'll be full and open here, I have gold options, I own gold companies um, at this point. And uh, even though I, I own those, which I think they're very bullish in the next year to three years, I think is Bitcoin, if in fact the narrative that, that we're both suggesting is happening, uh, plays out, I think you're going to find people 
very quickly understand why Bitcoin is more valuable than gold just because of the utility standpoint. Um, and as, as more and more people would adopt that and use it, I think that everyone's kind of looking at gold from, from the side saying, uh, so what's, what's the point anymore? Like, yeah, it's held up. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm being serious. That's how I would look at it. It's just like, okay, I can't go out and like go to the store and spend an ounce of gold to buy this. Like that's ludicrous. The storage to, for gold is ludicrous. The fact that I can't perform an audit of the gold that I'm holding, like if I buy some gold bars and I have them at my house, I don't know what's in the middle of those <laughs> and I'm not going to cut them apart to find out. So, you know, by running a full node, I can effectively cut the gold bar apart. Um, it, when you understand the technology and you understand what it's replacing, it's just so obvious um, why it has so much more utility. To reflect perhaps one of Safedean's arguments here is that there is still, I think one point that Safedean has been making recently is this point that it wasn't necessarily a technical failure of gold because people did have these other ways of doing it, right? They had other ways like clearing houses and so on. It was more of a political vulnerability that gold had that made it get really centralized. And I think the point that I've heard Safedean make on this is that also the idea with Bitcoin is that enough other people can run their own full nodes such that it just changes the game in terms of people being able to verify the supply and so on. Uh, but there is a point to be made there around like liquidity of gold and uh, enough of a custom and history that certain cultures, they like to give gold and so on. So it, it remains to be seen. I mean, no matter yeah. what, you're always going to have people tell you that the analog record and, and analog track sounds better than the digital one. But we, I think most people know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I agree. I think ultimately the world is moving to a Bitcoin standard and we're just, we're just early. We're just uh, trying to help other people see what we see. Uh, I'm also curious to ask a little bit around the overshoot and undershoot factor. So coming back to the Mayer multiple a little bit, might it be one way to think of it like it's like a rubber band and it sort of it, it gets a bit over. It's like you pulled that rubber band a little bit too far. Now it needs to kind of pull back. Is that one way you're thinking of it? Absolutely. Yeah, so I think of it like historically, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think on your website you were saying historically the average mayor multiple has been like a little bit above one. Yeah, it's it's historically around 1.4. So let, I'll just give you an example. So if the, if the price of Bitcoin was $14, everyone get excited, um, the, the moving average would be $10. So that would be a 1.4. Right, and so I think the other thing then is sometimes it, it – even with this recent kind of crazy run up earlier this year, right? So it was maybe three and a half thousand or whatever at the bottom at the end of last year. And then earlier this year, around June, during the time of Bitcoin uh, 2019, actually, the price is like it was hitting 14,000 in USD terms, which was quite clearly overstretched, right? So it kind of had to come back down a little bit and sort of wait a little while before it can keep going up. Yeah. And it's funny because literally on the day that it hit 14,000, I saw the mayor multiple and it had, it had touched a point that in the past has really been a very hard layer for it to go through. And, you know, I went on Twitter and I said, Hey, uh, this price is really exciting, but it's probably a great time to stop allocating <laughs> your, your, uh, fiat into Bitcoin and just kind of hold up for 30, 60, 90 days until it kind of comes back down into reality. Because again, I look at it like the, the number of people that are bidding that price and that are FOMOing are too limited to sustain the rate at which the FOMOing is occurring. I don't know if I described it real well there, but you need more people to be able to Think of it like this. If I came up and I said, Stephen, you come with me. And then you grab another person. You say, you come with me too. Like, there's, there's, a, there's a limit to how many people we can grab and take with us in these bull runs. And so when you think of how fast it's accelerating, think of it like if you're running 10 times faster than you normally run, well, now you can't even grab one person. You can only grab one person at half the rate that you were doing before. And so I think that's kind of what you run into with some of these ramp ups, because there's, there's something in the news. In this case, I think it was the Facebook announcement that caused all the, I mean, on c-span was running everyone's talking about crypto and it's like this thing never dies <laughs> and so everyone started everyone started jumping on like there's something to this 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think a big part of it is the emotions that play into it. So people get caught up and they think, okay, this is it. This is the one, guys. And it's not really, obviously. Uh, and then on, on the downside, the same thing can happen there as well. Oh, it's dead. Pack it up. It's all over. So I guess as in, you know, you run an investor's podcast, you've got to learn to stay your emotions or at least be a little bit more objective in that. Do you have any advice for listeners or any thoughts on how they can take that emotion out of it and think in a more objective fashion when they're investing? So from an emotional standpoint, I'd tell you that whenever you have your strongest emotions, just do the exact opposite. So um, whenever I re-entered the position in 2019, um, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article and they the the headline on the article was Bitcoin is dead. This thing, like this thing is done. And I was thinking, all right, here we go. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's all I needed. I just needed somebody to tell me like it's all it's over, stick a knife in it. And then looking at the mall, the mayor multiple and it being at like 0.5, it was like, okay, well, it's time to take a position again because everyone's thrown in the towel. There's total capitulation at this point. Um, and so that would be the opposite of how I felt. Now, even though that was what I did, that's not necessarily how I felt. You know, I'm reading the article. I was like, oh, this isn't good. But this is typically when I'm right is whenever I take a, a position when it feels so bad. And so on the other side, if you're taking a position and it feels oh so good, like you just crushed it, like you're up. I don't know how many percent, right? And the thing is just running. It's going parabolic. You're seeing the 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 whisker just blowing out to the upside. You're seeing like thousand dollar moves. I mean, this is a perfect example of what happened in the summer. I was, I got on a flight. I think I was flying to like Texas or something like that. I got on the flight and it went from like 11 to 12,000. And I was, I was flying with another person. I said, you watch when we land, it'll be a thousand higher. And I said, and then it's going to peak. <laughs> and so- and so we landed and it hit 14,000. I said, it's not going much higher. This is it. And so sure enough, I mean, it just, whew, because it just can't, it, it was like everything in me wanted to throw another, you know, <laughs> you know, 30, 40,000 at it. Like when I got off that plane, but I knew that's the worst time to do something is when it just feels so good. And so just, you know, you just, you wait and you just do the, you have to do the opposite of, of your extreme emotions. And I, I emphasize it with extreme because you're going to have these times when you're like, ah, this feels kind of right. And it might be, but whenever it's extreme, that's when you do the opposite. Um, as far as, um, I want, I want to try to quantify it because you were asking for me to quantify it and that's much more qualitative. I would tell you from a quantitative standpoint, the mayor multiple helps a lot. Another tool that I've recently started, kind of started looking at is this idea of incorporating a moving average combined with an RSI, which is a relative strength indicator. Um, for anybody that runs like a trading view uh, charting tool, you can pull these up. It's really easy. The RSI, you just click on there and it'll drop it in there. But I found that if you've never entered a position and you're trying to find like that perfect moment that you can take a position and not have your temperament tested, um, look for the price to be under the, the 50 day moving average and make sure your charts in days. Um, if you find the price under the 50 day moving average and the relative strength indicator, the RSI is below a 40 kind of below a 40 or a 30, you're probably going to get a great price and you're probably going to be able to enter the position and not really have to worry too much about, um, feeling really bad in the next 10 days. Like you're probably going to enter the position and it's going to go in a, in a very favorable direction for you. And for anybody that wants to kind of test that out, I'd tell you to plot 50 day moving average, your RSI and look at when it's under, when the price is under the 50 and your RSI is under, call it a 30, you're going to have a hard time finding that to be a bad entry point into Bitcoin. So I, if, if you're really nervous about it, I'd tell you to wait for kind of one of those indicators, um, which they'll happen. They don't happen a lot, uh, but they happen every year. And, and I would caveat that with make sure that you're not 
I would tell you to read Plan B's article on the larger cycles, the larger four-year cycles, and make sure that you're not entering during one of those periods of time. And they usually last about a year to a year and a half. So kind of stay away if you're trying to enter positions at, in, during those timings. Right. Yeah. And uh, I guess, yeah, that's interesting uh, ways to think about it. And I think, let me now just also represent the uh, Bitcoin Tina view of no trading and you should be very wary of any selling because the price might get away from you and we're going through a historical time and maybe one of these times it's going to come and you might think that you're selling out so that you can buy more cheaper, but actually it's going to get away from you and now you're going to have even less Bitcoins. And if we're moving towards a Bitcoin denominated future, then you're, you might be behind on that. What's your view there? I think that what you just said is probably the most important thing that was said during this entire discussion right there. And I'm not trying to say that to, for any reason at all. I just think that when you have something that has this much volatility, which it has 80% volatility in a single year, that it can go down. Um, if you think you're going to trade that and outperform its, its sheer performance of 200% annually, you are absolutely kidding yourself. <laughs> you are totally kidding yourself. Um, I would, I would make the argument that it would be impossible to do absolutely impossible to outperform somebody who just has a buy and hold strategy. Now I said that telling you that I sold in 2017, but when I bought in 2015, it was just, it, it was a buy and hold strategy. I wasn't trading it day to day. The only thing I did was keep adding to the position. I thought I had a very juicy once in a lifetime opportunity to get out and get back in at a better price after I paid taxes, which is just such a huge consideration that people completely forget about. I had that, I had accounted for, all right, if it goes down this much and I paid just ridiculous taxes on this, can I still enter with a high level of confidence that I can get the, the position back and still be ahead? And let me tell you, that was still relatively hard to do. And I don't even know that it would be replicable if I tried to do it again. So um, your point of buying and holding, I, th I think is just, boy, uh, people, I love this Charlie Munger quote. And I know Charlie Munger is not a Bitcoin fan. Rat poison is, I think, <laughs> his exact uh, terminology. But Charlie, Charlie Munger has this awesome quote. He says, don't just do something, stand there. And you couldn't get a better quote to represent what you should do in Bitcoin other than just buy it and just sit there and enjoy the ride. Fantastic. And I think it may be that uh, a listener wants to use the mayor multiple just to time their buys, right? They might just use it as like, a, okay, I'm going to put a little bit more in now. Okay, I'll wait for a good opportunity to buy. Okay, now I'll buy a few more now. That, that may be one way to think of it as well. Well, and I, it's exactly how to think of it. And that's, that's why we designed the tool. Uh, and put the the information out there was for people that are entering their position, particular people that are entering their position for the first time, because the only way I can describe this to somebody is you're jumping on a rocket ship. It is not going to be comfortable. It might not go the direction that you think it's going to go after you get on it. But if you can, if you can get situated on it and stay on it for, I would argue 90 days, you're going to find that the thing is going in a direction that assuming you get the four year cycle timing, right. Um, which I think is an important consideration for people to understand right now. I don't think it's too important for people to understand because I think we're beyond the, the kind of the bottom of that four year cycle or the, the bottom part of the four year cycle. But for people listening to this in the future, um, you got to understand that. And I think that once you get situated and you get on it, the tools that I'm talking about are to help you get on that rocket a little easier so that the ride's not so bumpy in the first 30, 60, 90 days. Fantastic. I think that's a great way to articulate that. Uh, so look, I think we're, uh, we might uh, call, come to an end there. Uh, but Preston, make sure you tell my listeners where can they follow you online and where can they find the Investors Podcast? So I'm very active on Twitter. I thoroughly enjoy uh, interacting with the Bitcoin community on Twitter because, man, there's some smart people. I mean, it's just, it is such a delight to talk with people on Twitter. And I mean, yeah, so you get some, you get some people that are uh, 
very uh, colorful in the way that they uh, interact, but I, it's all part of the community that I love. And um, if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, I'd love to have you as a follower. Just my handle is just Preston Pish. And uh, our website, The Investors Podcast, uh, we study all these different investing billionaires. We read the books that they read. We talk about the books that they read. We really try to cover all different angles of finance. And uh, we'd love to have you guys check out the show. It's just at, at theinvestorspodcast.com. Fantastic. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Preston. And uh, thanks for joining me. Wonderful to be here. Such a pleasure to be on your show. So I hope you enjoyed that. And remember, this is a great episode to share with your friends who are investors in a more traditional sense and they're thinking the traditional stocks and bonds. This episode might help them understand why Bitcoin is different as Preston's story could really help them see things from that different perspective. As always, the show notes and transcript are at my website, stefanlevera.com. Lastly, just a reminder about the Lightning Conference. It is October 19th and 20th in Berlin. The website is thelightningconference.com. It's got an absolutely amazing lineup. I'm looking forward to seeing a bunch of you there. I'm one of the MCs for the conference as well. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Berlin Citadels. Mm-hmm.